I'm Shelley Schlender for MeAndMyDiabetes.com. These days, many advocates of a higher-fiber, more complex-carbohydrate diet contend that our microbiome needs starches that are slow to digest. Up next, we talk with Ron Rosedale, author of The Rosedale Diet. Ron Rosedale, there's a lot of push to say that the microbiome inside of us to be healthy needs the kind of starches that are slow to digest so that there's still food value in them by the time they get down deep in the gut so that they can nourish the microbes that are considered the healthiest kind of microbes. This is called resistant starch. What do you think? Do we need resistant starch to feed those microbes and keep them healthy? The answer is not as simple as a yes or no. The simple answer, if I had to give one, would be no. We certainly don't need resistant starches. What would be a better food in that vein would be just pure fibers so that you get the benefit without the detriment. In other words, resistant starches are starches that resist partially digestion in the upper intestines such that some of that starch makes it down to the colon to feed bacteria that inhabit the colon. Those bacteria will partially turn those carbohydrates, certainly not totally, but partially into short-chain fatty acids that are thought to be healthy for gut bacteria. Now, there's many parts to that that are very misleading. First of all, when we say that the starches are resistant, it doesn't mean that none of the starch gets digested. Depending on the particular starch and or whether it was cooked at all, would determine how much of that starch actually gets digested into glucose. The portion that's digested into glucose will be detrimental. That will raise glucose, that will raise insulin. There is really nothing good that can be said about any food that turns into glucose, whether it be called a resistant starch or whether it be called a safe starch or any of the other terms that you're seeing pop up in the paleo community by people that are advocating eating starches. That just would not be good. There's glycation when you increase insulin every time you do it. You increase insulin resistance in the future and more importantly, perhaps leptin resistance. But that would be the story for another day that people could look up and find quite readily uh, arguments and debates about the so-called safe starches and the detriments of increasing insulin and blood glucose and things like that. So I think a person would be far better to just eat fiber if they wanted to, in particular soluble fiber, and not eat so-called resistant starch so that then they only get the fiber, they only get the so-called undigestible portion of the carbohydrates, at least undigestible to what is considered us, and more digestible to what is considered bacteria that would avoid the spike in blood sugar and insulin and leptin. It sounds a little bit like what you're recommending is what termites do to survive, where termites eat wood, and it's the bacteria and the microbes inside their digestive tract that digest the wood to make it something the termites can eat. You're suggesting that people get rid of the starches and just eat the fibers that usually wouldn't be digestible. What, what are some examples of foods like that, that kind of high-fiber food? Well, a high-fiber food would be, as you mentioned, cellulose, which is what you're talking about, that the bacteria eat in the stomachs of termites. Termites don't eat the wood. 
the bacteria eat the wood. The termites farm the bacteria. And in the same way, in a more common example, are cows. We think of cows as being nice vegetarians and just munching on grass, but they don't eat grass. They farm and they have extensive network of stomachs, actually, to extensively farm bacteria that can digest the cellulose in the grass and proliferate. And then the cows eat the bacteria for their protein and the resulting fatty acids. So the cows actually end up eating a protein fatty acid diet, not a carbohydrate diet at all. Meaning that what goes into their bloodstream is not carbohydrates or glucose. What's going into their bloodstream are the byproducts of what the microbes digested for them. Exactly. And what they're doing is they're feeding the grass to the microbes so that they can proliferate. And so they farm the microbes just like we farm the cows. Well, you're talking about cows where although plenty of cows get plenty of grain in feedlots, in the pasture-fed cow, the gold standard of what you want to have in terms of your food, they're eating grass. They're eating things that I think that we humans would find undigestible. It depends on what one calls digestible. It's digestible to our digestive system, but not undigestible to bacteria. The entire terminology, the entire image of what eating is, I think, has to be revised in people. And in fact, the entire concept of health needs to be revised so that people understand, first of all, that bacteria are a part of us. Just like we have a heart and we have lungs, and certainly one of their main functions is to distribute oxygen. Where do we get the oxygen from? We get the oxygen from plants. Plants are as necessary as our heart and lungs and can be considered, for instance, an external organ. But that then really makes the line fuzzy between what's an animal and what's a plant, which then makes the line very fuzzy between what's vegetarianism and what isn't. Being a vegetarian is not really being a vegetarian. They're not really eating the plants. They're feeding the plants to bacteria and then eating the bacteria and the byproducts of the bacteria. It's not quite as simple. We have to, I think, revise what we think is healthy because it's thought that butyric acid, short-chain fatty acids are healthy. And so the argument is being given in the paleo community and other health circles that if you increase butyric acid, butyrate in the gut, that you're doing something healthy. And it's one of the major arguments, maybe it is the major argument for eating resistant starches and safe starches that, that you're feeding the starches into the bacteria in the gut. And the bacteria, as we mentioned, is producing butyrate, and this is good for the gut. Well, an article just showed July 17th in the journal Cell, which is a nice prestigious journal out of the University of Toronto, that when you increase butyrate in the gut, you greatly increase the risk of gut cancer. And that's because what is so-called good for the cells of the gut, which is, depending on what you call good, the butyric acid is fuel by the cells of the gut. Well, that's what gut cancer is. Gut cancer cells are regular gut cells that need lots of fuel so that they can replicate and reproduce. So they need more fuel. And by increasing butyrate in the gut, what you're doing is you're increasing the fuel that gut cells use to replicate. And what you're doing then is fueling potential cancer. 
Oh dear, that's a problem. Yes, that's a problem. And so, you know, it's not really thought through, unfortunately. And this is a problem just in health in general and what defines health and what we are and what we are not, what cancer is and what cancer needs. Cancer, they're human cells, they're us. When we think that we're being healthy, and many times what we're doing is we're being healthier for the cancer cells. In other words, they require the same nutrients that we do. They are us, but they require more because it takes more nutrients to make babies. You know, any mother knows that. If we feed them those extra nutrients, what we're doing is just facilitating their growth. So that has to be thought about. So one has to use the differences between cancer and human cells. One of the major differences is the fuel that is generally used, the growth pathways that facilitate growth. The mTOR pathway, mammalian targeted rapamycin, is a huge pathway. It's a very integral, it's a very important pathway in all life that integrates nutrient availability and cellular growth and replication. And it's stimulated by a number of different signals, including glucose by itself, including amino acids, insulin. So all of these things that are found in a high-carbohydrate or a low-carbohydrate, high-protein diet will increase toward stands for targeted rapamycin, and increase cellular proliferation, increase cancer. You've mentioned that the mTOR pathway is one that especially gets pushed if someone's eating a lot of protein. So high amounts of protein can make that pathway get overstimulated and push it more toward not being helpful to us, but instead being something that's more prone to generate cancers. Yes. I think I first talked about that. When was that? I think you've got that talk on your site was that 2006, I think, or something like that. So quite a few years now, but I'm, I'm glad to see that that's getting quite a bit of traction and people are starting to really look at that pathway now and realize its importance as far as protein consumption. And many people now are, are really questioning a high-protein, low-carb diet. A low-carb diet is not just a single diet. There's huge differences between a low-carbohydrate diet a low-carbohydrate and a very low-carbohydrate diet, a low-carbohydrate high-protein diet, a low-carbohydrate high-fat diet. These are all extremely different and have very different consequences when it comes to cancer and diabetes, things like that. And that's something I'm wondering about right now when you're talking about the cell study. I'm a little troubled by the idea that butyric acid could be promoting cancer for two reasons. One is that I thought that cancer was primarily promoted by excess sugars. And two, because I thought butyric acid is something that butter breaks down into. And I kind of like butter. Yeah, me too. I love butter. So is the butyric acid that can be a byproduct of eating butter, the kind of acid, uh, substance and food that could promote these cancers? Or is it something about the combination of starches and sugars with butyric acid produced by the microbes. What do you think? Well, that brings up a you know, wonderful point, and that is that the human body is an extremely complicated network. It's very difficult to see all the different interactions. There are a number of factors that will feed into getting cancer. So in other words, if one eats butter, and I eat lots of butter, 
Are you scared that you're going to get cancer? No. Why not? One thing, most of that butter and most of the butyric acid in the butter is not going to make it into the gut. It's going to get digested and, and eaten for fuel if that person is following a very high fat, very low carbohydrate diet, because that then changes one's metabolism such that they use fatty acids as their primary fuel. And so the butyric acid is going to get better absorbed in myself, for instance, who is eating this type of diet for 25 years, that butyric acid will get burned for fuel and probably never make it down into my gut anyway. Furthermore, for instance, in the cell study, this was a very common form of colon cancer, and it was done in mice that had particular genetic mutations that are also found in humans that are commonly found in a common form of colon cancer that has to do with DNA repair. And so acquiring this cancer was a kind of a multifactorial process in which they had mutations to DNA repair, increase in DNA damage, which you're going to find when you have increased inflammation. These mice were sitting ducks for cancer. These mice were, were kind of sitting ducks for cancer. The extra butyrate then fueled what was already set up. And what can be set up to increase DNA mutations are going to be a higher carbohydrate diet. So even if you eat resistant starches, you're going to get glucose down into the gut. You're going to get uh, the promotion of candida, for instance, yeast. And that's one of the most common forms of dysbiosis. We know that. Yeast, excess yeast, candida, has been known for a long time to break down the intestinal barrier and basically make for leaky gut. Make for a leaky gut, increasing inflammation, stress the immune system of the gut. It was really the idea of candida in the gut that prompted Steve Barry to form Great Smokies Diagnostic Lab 25 years ago or something, I don't recall exactly, which was one of the first major labs that studied nutritional medicine and they specialized in microscopic examination of stool and the relationship between gut health and regular human health. Very popular, uh, excellent laboratory in North Carolina. It started by the idea that candida caused inflammation in the gut and was detrimental to human health. One of the first applications of a very low carbohydrate diet, really, 20 some years ago, was to not fuel the continual growth of candida in the gut. So to try and treat uh, gut health and to try and treat gut disease and candida in the gut in particular, which was attributed to many symptoms of disease, a very low carbohydrate diet was, was recommended at that time. You know, you're bringing up yet another interesting point. In the new studies of the microbiome, I don't know how much yeasts are tested. It depends on the laboratory. It depends on the university, whether or not overgrowth of yeast or impact of yeast is part of what is measured because most of the special assays that can find the thousands of different species of microbes are looking for bacteria. Yeah, exactly. And that's, it's, it's a major problem now. That it's good. I think certainly the, the gut microbiome is, is critical, but you certainly can't discard what has been known for at least a quarter of a century or longer 
So you're saying, what the heck about the yeast? Yeah, what about the yeast? Which has been long known to play a huge role in gut inflammation and gut health and also affects the gut biome, the type of bacteria that are in the gut also, and that are known to be fed and helped by glucose. So when people eat carbohydrates, they are fueling the growth of candida in their gut. All right. So one argument I hear you saying is that the resistant starches have enough starch in them that can turn into sugar that, for one thing, if there's any yeast overgrowth, that's still going to be aggravated and nourished by the starches and resistant starches. So that, that one worries you. Just for that simple point, that's an issue. I'm also wondering, you said that the cell study was a study of mice prone to cancer, but in mice, the kind of food that's usually given for a high-fat diet is about 45% lard and uh, a higher percentage of milk protein and then a high, high percentage of sugar. It's a weird diet. It's not a diet that a mouse would usually eat. It's not enough for a mouse to be a fat-burning mouse in ketosis. And it has a lot of elements that are, if you were to look at it, you'd say, well, this is kind of like a bad American diet. Yeah, what they did in this study in particular, they fed them a low-carbohydrate diet. I haven't actually uh, downloaded the supplement to find out exactly what the mice were eating in this. But the key to this study really had to with when they added butyrate. Now, how, how do you add butyrate? Because I keep asking scientists if they could get me some butyrate so I could taste it. And they look at me and say, that's impossible. It's too volatile. And you wouldn't like how it tastes anyway. It would taste horrible. So I, I can't picture how you can just feed these mice butyrate. That's a good question. So I don't know that. That would, again, have to be looked in the, in the procedure as to how they fed them. Have you ever tasted butyrate? Not pure butyrate by itself. When they did increase butyrate in the diet, it, uh, it is what proliferated the cancer. There were two mechanisms that helped reduce cancer in these colon cancer-prone mice, and that was a low-carbohydrate diet or antibiotics. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so let me pause and think about this. So they acknowledged that they were feeding the mice a high-carbohydrate diet. Just feeding them a high-carbohydrate diet. They were just feeding them normal mice chow, maybe. Normal mice chow, and they developed cancer. When they went to a low-carbohydrate diet and or fed them antibiotics, the colon cancer risk was greatly reduced. When they fed the low-carbohydrate mice butyrate, the risk of cancer went back up again. So they concluded anyway that it was the metabolism of the carbohydrate into butyrate that was uh, fueling the increased risk of cancer. Okay, so let me see if I heard this right. That on a normal mouse chow diet, which would probably be just basically ground up soy and corn or something like that. I don't think they did add butyrate to that. Okay. So with the special diet, it was low carbohydrate plus butyrate? First, it was just low carbohydrate diet, and that reduced the risk of cancer. And then when they added butyrate to that, it went, the risk of cancer went back up. I'm kind of curious to know how low they meant when they said low. Right. And of course, they still got cancer. So there is nothing then to say that if they didn't go lower in their carbohydrate intake, that the cancer uh, incidence would have been reduced further. 
my guess is it would have been. But what the study showed was that the reduction in cancer promoted or uh, initiated by a low-carbohydrate diet was negated when they added butyrate so that they felt that uh, it was the butyrate content that was uh, the, the variable in whether the risk of colon cancer in these mice was high or low. I still want to be able to eat butter at the end of this. Oh, yeah. Me too. See, this study came out a month and a half ago, and I have not reduced my butter one bit. Why not? Because this makes it kind of scary, because I thought that butter was a big source of butyric acid. And now what you said about how we digest it well, I almost hear you saying, wondering whether, though, if somebody was eating a fairly normal American diet, high in carbs, plus butter, they might be doing some dicey things inside their gut. And we know that uh, the way that these mice were set up with mutations to DNA repair are going to be kind of mimicked in people who have a high carbohydrate or higher protein diet. So the setup that these mice had initially uh, having to do with uh, mutations in DNA and DNA repair, I think are going to be minimized when one follows a very low carbohydrate, high fat diet to start with, uh, because you're going to then uh, reduce TOR, targeted rapamycin, and uh, you're going to increase DNA repair by increasing maintenance and repair when one keeps insulin and leptin low. So I think we've talked in the past about a kind of a genetic program that virtually all life has that can up and down regulate maintenance and repair and kind of allocate energy towards cellular multiplication or the maintenance of the life. In other words, when life, when, when it's an indication that there's enough fuel and building blocks for life available, there's a genetic program that says make hay while the getting is good. Firstly, when it is deemed that there aren't enough nutrients to make babies, essentially, or to make cells, that the cell will initiate a genetic expression of repair and maintenance that greatly enhances the ability of that particular life to outlive the perceived nutrient deficit or famine. We know that that direction of metabolism towards cellular replication or maintenance and repair is performed by these nutrient sensing pathways, such as the insulin pathway, and perhaps more importantly, the TOR pathway that also takes insulin into account. And when you keep TOR low, you increase maintenance and repair, and that means repair of DNA, so you don't get as much damage to DNA from the high glucose, and you have an increase in DNA repair from the nutrient-sensing pathways, such as insulin and TOR, so that you're not going to be set up for cancer in the first place, such that the butyrate would then fuel. So they say it's not as simple as it is on the surface. So a lot of things have to kind of go right, if you want to call it that, for cancer to really flourish. And conversely, a lot of things have to go right to be healthy. But I think we know a lot of what's necessary to be healthy if people wouldn't keep messing with it 
and by that I mean by the introduction of so-called safe starches and, and even resistant starches to some extent. And I think one of the problems also is the confusion between what's good and what's best. So people eat such a diet that is so bad that when you make any changes, it's, it's better. So if you eat resistant starches as opposed to regular starches, will it be better? Absolutely. Because you're not going to produce as much glucose. You might produce half the glucose from a regular starch as you would from a resistant starch. Would it be better not to have that starch at all? Probably. I'd probably rather not have half the, the glucose. I'd rather have no glucose. So uh, better does not mean good. Better just means better than bad. And that's something I think that really has to get drilled into people. Uh, because you see so many articles about certain diets that, uh, that offer improvement, that it, it lowered their hemoglobin A1C, meaning it improved diabetes and it caused some weight loss. Does that mean it was healthy? Well, because it improved a person doesn't mean it made them healthy. And because it caused weight loss, it certainly doesn't make them healthy. Weight loss is not a, a definition of health. You lose weight when you get cancer. So these mice that increased their cancer also lost weight. So that doesn't mean it's healthy. Uh, when you take cyanide, you lose weight. So losing weight doesn't mean that you're getting healthy, number one. So that can't be used as a criteria. You really have to use a little bit more knowledge into the biology of aging because I think certainly mortality rates can be used as a criteria of health. You know, you're not going to be healthy if you're dead. If you keep life alive longer and more free of disease longer, then I think you can at least have evidence that you're making that life healthier. Well, the life of these mice was not longer. They were dead from the cancer sooner right. because they got mainlined with butyric acid. And all that's interesting to be looking at because my understanding is that studies of cancer have indicated that when the microbes are producing butyric acid, that's actually protective of the lining of the gut and good for it and reduces the chance of cancer. That was my impression. Do you agree with that? I agree to some extent. Except for those darned sugar, starchy calories that increase insulin and increase yeast and so forth. And maybe increase butyrate too much. Because if it increases butyrate too more than, for instance, what a healthy cell can eat, then you have extra butyrate, and that extra butyrate might fuel the promotion of cancer. Too much of a good thing. Absolutely. It has to be recognized that cancer cells are nice, healthy human cells, and everything that we think is healthy for regular human cells is going to be at least as healthy for cancer cells. That surprises me, too, because I thought that cancer cells tended to have a metabolism that feeds most robustly on sugar. Cancer yeah. cells are burning up fuel so fast, they can't afford to use oxygen, and so they use some processes without oxygen that make for basically a dirtier fuel that produces more toxins, but whatever on that, it gives them fuel, and that is sugar. I didn't know that butyric acid could also be something that feeds a cancer cell. It depends on where the cancer is and how fast it's growing and the type of cancer. And so these solid tumor cancers, uh, such that blood supply can't feed the interior. In other words, they outpace the growth of their blood supply that then have to operate more anaerobically. They will prefer glucose. So many types of cancer, and perhaps most, I would say most cancers, grow faster if they have more glucose because the glucose 
is an anaerobic fuel. And this is true. And in fact, many cancers, even if they have enough oxygen, will prefer to burn glucose, so-called uh, aerobic glycolysis, uh, which is what the so-called Warburg effect is. Just because it's so darned fast and hot. Exactly. And so how about this butyric acid? Butyric acid when cancer is a different kind of cancer. Because intestinal cells, they really like butyric acid. They're kind of evolved to really think that's yummy stuff. Exactly. And colon cancer, most of the time, isn't a real fast-growing cancer. So most of the time, it actually has not outpaced its blood supply. The cancer itself is more exposed to the air. You know, it's, it's the gut. There's, there's air right there. And so there's plenty of oxygen around that can be used to burn fat. So uh, it doesn't have that problem of lack of oxygen, or so it doesn't have to go into anaerobic metabolism. And as I say, it's not one of these type of cancers that is so fast-growing that it outpaces the blood supply. So the typical, I guess it's not typical, but what ought to be typical image of cancer cells requiring glucose as their primary fuel is not 100%. It's most cancers, not all cancers. It depends on the kind of cancer, and it depends on where it is. In this particular case, in this particular kind of cancer, in this particular form of colon cancer, normal paradigm doesn't really hold. In this particular case, butyric acid is the preferred fuel. These mice, when they were on a low-carbohydrate diet, and we'll check to see what that meant for these mice, they had to be eating something else then. Was it then a high-protein diet that they were eating with low-carb, or was it high-fat? I don't know. You'd have to look. Typically, it's a higher protein. The reduced carbohydrate calories are generally split between fat and protein. But again, it, that wasn't really the point of the study. The point of the study wasn't to show that a low-carbohydrate diet was particularly great. What they were showing that when they added butyric acid back in, cancer was again promoted. In other words, by lowering the carbohydrate, they felt that it was lowering the butyric acid that improved the cancer risk. And when they added the butyric acid back, it negated the benefits. Also, that this group of researchers decided that the fact that the carbohydrates fed the microbes in the gut to make butyric acid, uh, that was creating a lot of butyric acid, which might promote this kind of cancer. So the reason they lowered the carbohydrates. That was the premise of doing the, the uh, experiment in the first place. But see, I hear you saying that lowering the carbohydrates didn't just lower the butyric acid. It also lowered insulin levels. It lowered leptin levels. Right. Are you thinking that the conclusion of these scientists who did this study is what you would conclude? Well, again, they took mice that had two common mutations that have to do both. You know, there were, it was a DNA mutation and a mutation in the ability to repair DNA. So it's going to be a lucky and amazing thing if these mice do not get cancer, whatever happens. Well, they would get cancer probably. It's a matter of when and, and how rapidly. But these two mutations are commonly found in humans. So they already gave the mice these mutations. What I'm saying is that these mutations are going to be probably more commonly found in people who are eating a high-carbohydrate and or a high-protein diet. And so they're going to be set up for cancer. And then they will fuel that cancer if they have more butyrate, if they have that setup. And where will they get the butyrate from? Well, butyrate is going to be found in, in the diet, as you mentioned, but the butyrate will be 
from carbohydrates. Meaning it will be a fuel that's created by the microbes munching away in the colon on the high-carbohydrate foods or the resistant starch foods. Correct. And even if a person were to eat a whole bunch of fiber, produced less rapidly, quite a bit less rapidly from fiber. So I think that the, the speed in which it's produced is quite critical too. Because if it's produced more rapidly, of course, it's going to fuel more rapid cellular growth uh, than if it's produced more slowly. So the, the production of uh, butyrate, for instance, from fiber is going to be a bit slower than if you just had it from uh, more digestible starches. If someone's adapted to eating high fat, it's not like they're flooding their gut with a whole bunch of butyrate. They're burning most of that as fuel. There's not as much that ends up in the large intestines in the colons for the microbes there to be using. That's part of it, but the other part, uh, and I think perhaps even more importantly, is they're not going to have these genetic mutations to DNA as, rap as prevalently or as developed as rapidly. In other words, they're not going to be exposing themselves to high rates of glucose. They will be upregulating the repair phenotype, the repair genotype. And so since somebody who's not eating a lot of carbs and sugars won't have high insulin and high leptin levels, their body will stay more tuned to keeping itself in good repair. In that case, it doesn't matter that you're eating butter and having more butyric acid. Uh, the cells will still be going smoothly through their lifespans without rapid multiplication. Life, you know, in, in general, from a you know very simplistic and general standpoint, could be seen as a constant battle between damage and repair of damage. So, if we could repair damage as rapidly as it occurred, we would live forever. And most people are looking at the damage side of the equation, and throughout health circles and, and things like that, natural health and medicine, uh, conventional medicine. I was looking at damage. You talk about oxidation and antioxidants. Everybody takes antioxidants because they say that oxidation is what one of the major things that causes damage, things like that. And indeed, it does cause some damage. But a lot of times, actually, that damage is good for you. For instance, damage in the mitochondria is a trigger then to upregulate repair mechanisms. And they've shown that when you increase oxidation to at least some extent in the mitochondria, these animals will actually live longer because they've upregulated repair mechanisms that are initiated by damage to the mitochondria. So here we are again in that delicate balance area where you want enough but not too much. Uh, exactly. We need to concentrate as much or more, and I would say more, on upregulating repair mechanisms because we know that's really plastic. We know that it's very variable, that there, there are mechanisms, very powerful genetic mechanisms that are signaled by nutrients to upregulate our ability to repair damage. And that includes, and especially includes actually, DNA repair. So DNA repair, uh, heat shock proteins, antioxidant systems, that are initiated from inside the cells 
that will never arrive there if you take it by mouth. So that will do nothing. So all these people taking antioxidants by mouth and expecting that to have a significant impact on lifespan and health, it's not going to happen because it has to be regulated. It has to be orchestrated. We need oxidation at certain times. We need it in certain places, and we need it to be orchestrated with particular places. Where, when, and how it's done is what will determine whether that oxidation is good for us or bad for us, and whether it will upregulate repair mechanisms. And just taking antioxidants as a blanket to reduce damage doesn't mean it's going to be healthy. In fact, often it's not. And that's why there are quite a few studies that show that people who take certain antioxidants uh, increase their risk of cancer. When these studies first came out many years ago, they were blast, it can't be true, it's not true, this and that. Well, it was true. Uh, they just didn't want to see it. And that's because of a narrow view of what health is and how, what, what life is. That life is, is in the orchestration. So life is in the orchestration. And in the orchestration, you're focusing on how fundamental and how important it is to keep clear signals of hormones that keep telling the body, repair those cells, maintain those cells, repair, repair. And the most powerful of those signals that control that orchestration of repair are going to come from nutrient-sensing pathways that are common virtually to all life, certainly all animal life. We know one of the major pathways is the insulin pathway that's been known for 20-some years now. And more recently, we know that perhaps even more importantly would be the mTOR pathway. The insulin pathway feeds into the mTOR pathway. And then TOR kind of uses all this information to decide whether to upregulate maintenance and repair or initiate cell division. So uh, it's an extremely important pathway that needs to be accounted for in a person's diet. I'm Shelley Schlender. You've been listening to Ron Rosedale, author of The Rosedale Diet. For more interviews like these, check out meandmydiabetes.com.